0: In about a month, I'll be running a workshop at the Victorian Christian Youth Conference, VCYC. And um, I was given the option to choose my own topic, which is good. So I thought, oh, what's clickbait for teenagers? And I thought, okay, here's here's my title. What does God want me to do with my life? That's the title of the talk that I'll be doing. So when I I was at uni, that was a big question um, for, for me. Does God want me to be a viola player? who does God want me to marry? All those kind of questions. And for thousands of years, you know, that's what human beings have sought God for, to find out what their destiny is. Um, And people have tried all kinds of things. They've tried, you know, mediums, psychics, tarot card readers. After uh, President Reagan had an assassination attempt in 1981... Nancy Reagan actually employed a White House psychic. Uh, She hired Joan Quigley. Uh, She's actually an astrologer, permanent White House astrologer. And obviously this was kept quiet because those two, the Reagans, were famous evangelical Christians. And... um, so this would have been horor- you know, a big scandal amongst their constituency, and actually when it came out at the end of Reagan's time, it was a big scandal. And the, the Chief of Staff, um, Donald Reagan, funnily enough is his name, he wrote this in his memoir. Virtually every major move and decision the Reagans made during my time as White House Chief of Staff was cleared in advance with a woman in San Francisco who drew up horoscopes to make certain that the planets were in favourable alignment the enterprise. Can you believe that? That's amazing. Now the thing is, um, people do all kinds of weird things to try and work out what their destiny is. Shakespeare wrote in his play Julius Caesar, he questioned this kind of astrology approach. He said, it is not in the stars to hold our destiny, but in ourselves. In ourselves, he says. Similarly, Charlotte Bronte wrote in Jane Eyre, kind of a self-destiny approach. Your will shall decide your destiny. Is that right? Do we determine our own destiny? Perhaps we make too much of it. Maybe, you know, destiny is not a real thing. Uh, Lennon and McCartney wrote in, uh, all you need is love. There's nowhere you can be that isn't where you're meant to be. Uh, believe it or not, the idea of us having a destiny is much, actually much more biblical than you would think. Lots of people have different ideas. But the Bible has a very clear idea about our destiny. And this passage talks about that. So let's look at it. You might want to open your passage. Starting at chapter 2, verse 5 of Hebrews. Verses 5 to 8 carries off on a point that we were discussing last week. That Jesus is better than the angels. More superior. He says, It is not to angels that that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. And then in verse 6, there is one of the most refreshing lines in the whole Bible, which is this. But there is a place where someone has testified. And so next time you remember that the Bible says something and you can't remember who said it and where it is, you can just say, as it says in Hebrews 2 (laughs) verse 6, somewhere someone said something. I'll just, I'll just let, let you know a secret about Paul Davies, who's, you know, the guy singing and playing a guitar at the front here, that he knows his Bible really well. And he knows it so well that he knows that other people don't know it as well. He's not arrogant about it, but he likes to make tricks on us. And he'll do some, like this thing where what he does is he'll quote the Bible to you, like I say, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. And then he'll just pull out a random... He'll just say, Philippians 4, verse 7... Which is not actually where that verse is from. But he knows it. None of you know either. Uh, and so he sounds so con- confident. And actually, I from Hezekiah 3, verse 1. <laughs> anyway, what did someone somewhere say? Actually, the writer to the Hebrews, while well, they can't remember who, who wrote what, where, it's from Psalm 8. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him, You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with the glory and honour and put everything under their feet. Now this quote is originally about people, not about the Messiah. It sings of the glory God gave to men and women. And it's an expansion of Genesis 1.28 about the idea that God gave dominion to Adam and Eve, to man and woman. Dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth says that human beings are, a little, uh, are quite glorious, a little lower than the angels. And this is actually a translation of the Greek version of the Psalms. But actually, um, in the Hebrew version of that Psalm, the word um, Elohim uh, actually says, it means a little lower than even God himself, a little lo- lower than the heavenly beings. The Psalmist is saying, God made man and woman glorious, gloriously. He gave us dominion over everything in the world. He wanted Adam and Eve to subdue the land, fill it, that their children and their children's children would rule over the creation, to have mastery over it, to manipulate the creation, to make stuff, to farm, to care for it. Now, the problem is, of course, that um, uh, I don't know if you're like me, but I don't feel like I have dominion. Uh, It doesn't seem like I've got much dominion. Because of our human sin, the Bible says, we're frustrated in our dominion. We're frustrated creatures. We're defeated by our temptations and our sin. We're surrounded by weakness. We should be free to exercise our dominion, but we are, in fact, slaves. The early 20th century Christian writer, um, G.K. Chesterton, said... Whatever else is or is not true, this one thing is certain, we are not what we were meant to be. But into this situation comes Jesus. He suffered and died, because, and because he suffered and died, he entered into glory. And that suffering and death and glory are all for us because he died to make us what we ought to be. He died to rid us of our frustration and our bondage and our weakness and to give us the dominion that we're supposed to have. He died to recreate us until we become what we were originally created to be. So to summarise what I've just said so far, God created us only a little less than the angels or even a little less than himself um, and the angels to have control over all things but through our sin, human being sin, we found ourselves defeated being under control instead of being in control. And into this state of defeat came Jesus in order that by his life and death and resurrection and glory, he might make men and women what we were meant to be. But we can also look at it from another angle. What the writer is saying is three ideas. Like this, the ideal. He's showing us the ideal of what we should be. A little lower than the angels. He shows us the actual human condition. The frustration instead of the control. The failure instead of the glory. And he shows us how we now can be changed through Jesus Christ. This idea, ideal of a glorious human being exercising dominion, subduing the land, being free, this is our true destiny. That's what Christ offers us. Christ is the one who by his sufferings and his glory can make us what we were meant to be. Without him, we could never be this. So that's the first idea. Secondly, Jesus shows us something amazing about himself in verses 10 to 13. He's called the pioneer of our salvation. He's the head or the chief. But he's more than just the boss, he's like the founder or the originator. You might have a founder of a city or you have founders of schools. He's the founder of salvation. But he's even more than a founder a pioneer or a founder begins something so that others will join in too. He's like a person who begins a family so that children will be born or a person who builds a city so that people can live in it or a person who begins a school so that others can learn the philosophy of that school. Jesus is the pioneer of blessings so that others can be blessed, so that others can enter into that blessing. He is the trailblazer for our salvation. He goes first and makes it possible for others to follow next. It's a bit like, imagine a ship struck uh, stuck on the rocks. There are people on board. And the only way to get from the water to the land is through a, a kind of a tricky pathway. So one person gets a rope on their shoulders and jumps into the water and, and swims to the shore with the rope. And that one person does it first and then others can follow the rope into the, into the sand, into the land. This is the, trail bla- the trailblazer. And this is what he's meant by saying that Jesus is the pioneer of salvation. Jesus is the trailblazer who carries the secure line to God. And he wants us to follow. And in verse 10, Christians are described as sons and daughters. And in verse 11, family with the one that makes people holy. We're family with Jesus. Jesus isn't ashamed to call his brothers and sisters, which is amazing. And Jesus sings to God in verse 12, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. There's a great book um, by Tim Keller um, called The Prodigal God, and in it he makes a really profound point about Jesus as our brother. You might remember from the prodigal son story. Let me just retell you if you're not sure how it goes. It's found in Luke 15 there's a family that's talked about um, the father and an older and a younger son and the youngest son is obnoxious and he goes to his father and says I pretty much wish you were dead um, you're not dead so please give me my inheritance now so I can just go off and live my life please and he brought great sh- shame on the family and the father in, in his broken heart but graciousness gives him his youngest son uh, the inheritance and the son goes off and wastes the money on wild living and and finds himself um, run out of money in a a famine, working in a pigsty, and comes to his senses and says, I I think I actually need to say sorry to my dad and go home and see if he'll accept me back. So he turns around and goes home. And as he's walking back, the father sees him in the distance and runs out and embraces his youngest son and with tears in his eyes, and he puts a cloak on his youngest son's back, gives him the family ring, the signet ring, puts it on his finger showing that he's accepted back in the family, puts sandals on his feet and tells his, um, his, 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 his workers to go and kill the fatted calf and throw a big party because we've got to have a celebration because my youngest son's back. And so they have this big party and the band starts playing and in the distance, the older brother who's out on the field working really hard he hears this noise, and he comes in and he finds out what's going on. And he gets enraged, he's so angry, he's so annoyed. And he says to um, his father, "I'm just cheesed off. I've been with you my whole life, and I've served you faithfully, and I've worked my young stupid younger brother has wasted all the inheritance,' his share, and he's brought shame on the family. Why are you throwing him a big party? You've never thrown me a big party." And the, and the father says, son, you know, everything you have is mine. You've, all, you've got to live with me all this time and we have family together. And we have love together. But, but, but we've got to rejoice because your, your little brother has come home. He was once dead. and Now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. That's the story of the prodigal son. Now, Tim Keller points out that there are th- two other stories around this story. There's the story of... the uh, uh, the parable of the lost coin where um, there's a, precious, a woman has a precious coin and she loses it in the house and then she goes looking for it and finds the precious coin. And there's also the parable of the lost sheep. There's a hundred sheep. One gets lost and the shepherd goes looking for that lost sheep and brings it back. But in the story of the prodigal son, uh, there's someone who gets lost, the younger brother, but there's no one who goes looking And what seems to be the case here is that Jesus, who's telling these stories to the people looking on, is doing something tricky. He's creating this anxiousness for us as we listen to these stories of where's the person who's going to go looking for the younger brother? Where is that person? And, you know, the person who should be going looking is the older brother, because He's the older brother and he has responsibilities to uphold the family name. He should have said to his, his, his father, he should have said, Father, my younger brother, he's been a stupid fool and now my his life's in ruins. But I'm gonna go and look for him and bring him home. And if the inheritance is gone as I expect, I'll bring him back into the family at my expense. That's what he should have done, the older brother. I mean, hopefully that's what we would do. I'm an older brother. Hopefully if Catherine won't get lost, I'd go and look for her. Um, that's Campbell's job now. <laughs> the thing is, we don't have to put up with an older brother who has issues. A brother that suffers from first child syndrome. Who thinks he has a right to dominate, to have everything his way an elder brother who doesn't sympathise with others and doesn't care about how we feel. You see, Jesus has put the angry elder brother in the story to make us long for that angry elder brother. One who, if we go astray, won't hold it against us, but seek us and bring us back at any risk and cost to himself. We need one who would not just go into a far country to get us, but one who would come all the way from heaven down to earth. We need a trailblazer for our salvation, a trailblazer for an older brother. The missing older brother in the story of the prodigal son is Jesus himself. One who would not just spend his money, but pour out his whole life for us. He didn't just pay a finite debt, but an infinite debt to bring us back to God's family we have this true elder brother, Jesus Christ. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He's our trailblazer, our pioneer of our salvation. In verses 10 to 18 also we have another idea about Jesus I want to share with us. How is he able to be our trailblazer? The answer is in the passage. It's that he, God made, made him perfect through his suffering. It says in verse 10... God made Jesus the pioneer of our salvation perfect through what he suffered. And by perfect, what is meant here, maybe like an unblemished animal that's fit to be offered as a sacrifice, or like he's like a, a professor academic who's at the end of their career and knows everything there is to know about their field and is the absolute you know, epitome of what it means to be a professor. Is he's, he's like a fully grown human being at the peak of their fitness. But this is what Jesus is in terms of his role as the Messiah, the Son of God. He is perfected as much as that is possible. This word perfect is used to describe a person who fully carries out the purpose for which they were designed. (coughs) Through suffering, Jesus was able to fully complete the task of being the pioneer of our salvation. Now how does this work? Because isn't Jesus the Son of God? Isn't he perfect? You might be thinking. Well, it works like this. First of all, through his suffering, he could be the one true sacrifice for our sin. While on earth, Jesus is made a little lower than the angels to be like human beings. Incarnate, God, man, sharing fully in the human flesh and blood, it says in Hebrews 2 verse 9 and 14. His humanity was necessary so that he could endure temptation and suffering and could serve as a one true sacrifice. Secondly, um, he's perfected in his suffering because through his sufferings, he, was, he really identified with us. If Jesus had come into this world um, as a form other than a, a full human being, it would be very difficult um, for us to identify with him. He couldn't be our saviour. When God saved human beings, he chose to use a human being. That's just God's way. And this is a uniquely Christian idea, because actually the Greeks had this idea of God being lofty and far off, and... Hard to reach, but in the Christian gospel, God becomes a man and can relate on our level. And thirdly, a similar idea that flows out of this idea is that through his identity, through this identity as the suffering savior, Jesus Christ empathizes with us. Now last night Joe and I saw um, a friend, a friends musical, uh, well, it was like a cabaret performance, um, Amy Ridley, some of you might remember her from um, St Hilary's days. She performed a one-woman cabaret show that she wrote. um, uh, It was in in at the Kew Courthouse, and it was called Pain the Musical, catchy title. And the first song she sang was Fame, I'm gonna live, and then she changed it to Pain. Anyway, for the last 12 years, uh, Amy has suffered with chronic back pain. She had an injury, um, carrying um, some costumes for the Australian Girls Choir, and then something happened to her back. Her back actually healed but then there was a nerve thing that went wrong so the nerves constantly fire um, confused messaging to the back, to the spinal cord and that just meant that she's had chronic pain for 12 years and had to stop working and it's just her full-time job has been pain management. It's been really hard for her. She's had to stop working everything. She's, she's been able to have a child and she's pregnant uh, having a second child but that is so hard and Managing a toddler with chronic back pain is so difficult. And in the musical, it was actually funny. So she's trying to convey what it's like to be in the, her shoes. She's like, people just don't get it. They kind of think that you, it's a figment of your imagination or, you know, surely you can get over it. She's seen like hundreds of doctors and she sang, sang this song where she listed all the types of doctors she saw, you know, and... Um, her point is that, you know, people can't understand because unless they've had chronic back pain, it's really hard to empathise with somebody else. And that's what we, we have in Jesus. Jesus can actually empathise with us and know what it's like to be a full human being who's walked in the shoes that we walk in, who's suffered what we suffer and tempted in the ways that we're tempted because he experienced that too. He can actually feel with us. It's very hard for a person who is fit to understand what it's like to be unfit. It's very hard for a person who's really good at maths to understand why others can't be good at maths. Empathy requires going through, uh, partly it requires going through what other people are going through. It requires this kind of ability to, to, to think about what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. Jesus did that. And uh, there's some uh, good application for us there as we think about how to relate to each other. Jesus went so far, he stepped down out of heaven to be able to walk in our shoes, to be our saviour, our perfect saviour. And we need to do the same for others. We need to form relationships with people. Pastoral care should involve actually not just holding each other at arm's length, but walking alongside each other. Um, I've, I've mentioned it before, but you might have seen the kind of the YouTube sensation Brené Brown, who's you know um, talks about empathy, and um, she's actually a, an Anglican. Anyway, that's a side the point. Empathy, she says, empathy feels connection, whereas sympathy, she contrasts it to, sympathy actually promotes disconnection. Empathy requires perspective taking, staying out of judgment, recognizing emotion, and, and communicating that empathy is feeling with people it's like when someone is down in a dark hole um, and, they're, and they're frightened and they're saying I'm stuck and I'm dark it's dark down here and I'm, I'm disoriented and I don't know what's going on to show empathy is to climb down in the hole and say you're not alone I'm, I'm down here with you sympathy on the other hand is looking down into the hole from up, up high going hi down there You look, uh, hello, um, can I call triple zero, you know, uh, and feeling awkward and not knowing what to say and trying to make it better, oh, you'll be all right, somebody will come, you know, that's sympathy, it's quite a different thing. Empathy is a choice that knows the feeling of what it's like to be down in the hole, in order to connect with you in empathy, I need to connect with something inside of me. And and the wrong response is to say, well, at least. Brené Brown says, you know, when someone says, like, my wife had a miscarriage, you don't say, well, at least you guys can get pregnant. I'm trying to make it better. My marriage is falling apart. Well, at least you're married. It's good to have a marriage, isn't it? That's sympathy. That's not right. That creates disconnection. In the face of the difficult encounter, we try and make things better. But the far better response is just to sit down and say, I don't know what to say, but I'm glad you told me. I'm here with you. That's empathy. And Jesus, he has climbed down in the hole with us. He became human and suffered in every way, and by doing that, became perfect. He is the perfect trailblazer for our salvation. And when we cry out, he says to us, I know what it's like to be down there. I know what it's like to be a human with all the struggles that you've got. You're not on your own. I'm with you. So, to finish by suffering and facing temptations, Jesus was perfected. He was able to fulfill his destiny. That was his destiny to be our Saviour. And he can actually empathise with us. He knows what we need and he can give it to us. He can be the perfect sacrifice for us. And so we can actually fulfil our destiny. We can be brought back into the family of God as brothers and sisters and with Jesus and children of the Father. I think it's great. Jesus fulfilled his destiny so that we can fulfil our destiny. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus to be the trailblazer for us. That he was perfected in his suffering. And that even though we were not the way we were supposed to be, that he made it possible for us to be the right way. That he restored us to you. That he brought us back in to the family. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the true older brother in the prodigal son story, the one who runs out and rescues us and gives up everything to save us. Amen.